<laughs> I'm glad you are. You 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 put together innovation, and it's fun. And I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And we'll do it live. Trigger. I can't really identify the, the systems exactly. Um, I can tell you that they were at least 40 to 50 years uh, in the future compared to everybody else. My God. This technology, uh, just mind blowing things. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that strange? We were talking about the president, and all of a sudden we got cut off. I don't want to brag, but by myself, I killed the guy. Well, today I'm going to see you with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You listen to that. Well, we probably the You would not even know about the secret societies. You would not even know about the Illuminati. You would not know anything about the world conspiracy. No. <laughs> We're sorry. You have reached the European no longer in service. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I am a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First-time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days and you'll find the 24-7 network. Go to michaeldeacon.com for your preferred choice of platform to hear the podcast rendition of this program. My guest tonight is Sean David Morton. He is the host of Strange Universe Radio. Mr. Morton really does not need an introduction but he's getting one here tonight for those who have no clue who he might be. Mr. Morton first came to national attention with his investigations into Area 51 and his accurate predictions regarding the 1989 San Francisco earthquake. Sean is a skilled and experienced remote viewer and has taught remote viewing and seminars all over the world. He has been a freelance writer, producer, and investigative reporter on television. Sean is a skilled and very experienced remote viewer. I have to say that twice for those out there who are not paying attention. Sean is also the author of The Sands of Time, which chronicles the experiences of an Area 51 insider that includes his experiences with UFOs, aliens, time travel, government conspiracies, and more. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Good morning and good evening to all of you out there. Always an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you to those here in America and those who listen outside of America for listening to this program. Appreciate that greatly. Welcome back to another special Friday edition of the Michael Deacon program. I hope you stick around and let me deprogram you. Now, plenty to discuss here with Mr. Sean David Morton. Let's bring him on. Sean, is that you? That's me. Hello. How are you? There you are. What's up, Michael? I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm so glad you can be here tonight. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be anywhere. So it's uh, oh yes, <laughs> oh yes. So much to discuss here with you, sir. Yes, How, sir. However, I, I do want to go over your background here for those who have no clue who you are. For those who are just stumbling in here, can you tell us 
a little bit about yourself, sir. Uh, you're going to make me introduce myself, really? Uh, I know. So, uh, it's so horrible. It, it's so typical. I know. I'm sorry. I, am I? I'm I. I'm the man who needs no introduction. It's, it's uh, really that's that's what I said in the intro there. Okay. It's um. Let me see. Background. Uh. Let me see. Metaphysical background. News background. Movie background. Uh. Producer background. I uh. I I graduated from. I uh, went to Stanford for summer school, then graduated from the University of Southern California with degrees in. With degrees in uh, a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Fine Arts, and Political Science. It was a semester away from degrees in organic chemistry and and uh, organic chemistry and astronomy, which made me perfect for life in the 15th century. And uh, getting out of school, I I sold a script to the TV show Buck Rogers. Uh, I worked on rock music videos early in the 80s for Genesis and Mike and the Mechanics and Icicle Works and Jeffrey Osborne and all that stuff. Uh, 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 what else? Um, let me see. Writers Guild went on strike. Actors Actors Guild went on strike in the, in the early 80s. Uh, went into the restaurant business. Actually had a, a couple of uh, fast food restaurants called the Health Hut. Tried to serve healthy soup salads, salads and smoothies in a couple of locations in Southern California. Was a nightclub owner with uh, some partners of mine, a place called Vertigo, which we eventually sold to Prince. And then uh, made a ton of money in the stock market using uh, remote viewing techniques. To predict not only the stock market, but, you know, roulette wheels, gambling, et cetera, et cetera, was part of, uh, part of a Stanford study that actually, uh, was studying the remote viewing phenomenon on using it to predict the outcome of random number generators like roulette wheels, et cetera. Uh, had a bunch of partners that basically kind of spent all our money on the nightclub. The nightclub closed down for a while and I packed a bag and a stick and went off to Ireland, England, uh, northern India. I lived in Darfsala, which is where the Dalai Lama has his, I don't know what you want to call it, a palace mm-hmm. compound or something, but it was a bunch of British offices that were right. granted in 1948. So lived there, actually set up a, set up an orphans program, a, a kind of a school program, which Benedict Cumberbatch eventually came along and took over. And then after a personal meeting with the Dalai Lama, uh, he told me to go to this monastery called Tangbache, which is really far away. It's at the foot of, it's been in the news lately because of all this stuff going on up on, up on Mount Everest, but Tangbache is kind of your last stop before you go to Mount Everest. I lived at Tangbache actually as a novitiate monk for uh, almost, well, eight months, nine months almost. Uh, came home, uh, worked again as a, as a disc jockey and a screenwriter and uh, toured around the world actually teaching remote viewing in Japan and in, uh, in Sweden. Uh, I came up with a remote viewing seminar called Spiritual Remote Viewing that uh, I, I think was a fantastic gift to people. Let me see. And then wrote, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I uh, wrote and produced and directed a, an award-winning film called Joe Killionaire, which is kind of a horror comedy. And uh, and then most of the 90s, I, I worked in uh, television for programs like uh, Hard Copy. I was a freelance producer for Hard Copy. We had a show. One of the shows that I created was called Strange Universe, the TV show. And that ran on uh, UPN for about three years or so. And I was one of the original producers on that with uh, uh, Margaret Roberts and Paul Barras. And so we delved into all kinds of crazy things. In 1990, I did a, I worked on a documentary called UFO Contactees and we had a budget of about $300,000 and we went all around the world for about six months interviewing every UFO contactee, abductee, scientist, researcher. In that, we interviewed Bob Lazar, the first people to interview Bob Lazar when he came out and, uh, which later then led to my leading groups and tours out to Area 51 and actually finding a hilltop that looked down on Area 51 where I managed to film it for the first time and uh, did a ton of research in Area 51 and actually got it on the front page of the LA Times. 
George Knapp and Lazar and Bill Cooper and uh, John Lear were responsible for kind of making Area 51 famous in Nevada, but I was the one that put it on the Times and made it kind of an international thing and took people like Dean Devlin out there who later did the movie Independence Day, which is all about Area 51. And um, so uh, as this progressed, um, I became the number one guest on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM for 17 years. Actually, I handed Art my database of all these unusual people, and Art turned that with my database and my people turned into a show with <laughs> right. 6 million people and uh, also produced the, uh, was one of the producers on the original episode of sightings, which was Linda Moulton Howe's creation. And uh, as I progressed through this, this sort of leads to, you know, what we have for sale, which is the, uh, uh, there was a man that I was talking to who was a, a top level fellow in the secret government. I guess you could say, I didn't really know who he was. He just started calling me on the phone and meeting up with me at conferences and just giving me all this inside information that would happen. And then uh, last I spoke to him was uh, he was at Obama's inauguration in 2009, and he uh, called me on the phone for the inauguration because oh, wow. he was la- he was laughing his head off because I yes. had predicted in print that Obama would screw up the oath of office, and uh, and he did. Mm. <laughs> so he called me laughing about that. But then I got a call from these attorneys who said that uh, this gentleman, uh, Dr. Ted Humphrey, not his real name, but that he's left you his journals and. Uh, just as long as you don't use his name or his family because they're still alive, uh, you can do what you want with them, which then led to my writing uh, three three books called Sands of Time, Volume 1, Volume right. 2, mm-hmm. and then the third one, which is uh, which is the uh, the Isomer Protocol, which is the third book. There you go. I've talked on that. I, I, you know, I think the first time I heard about you was through your book, The Day After Roswell. That's not my book. Uh, that's uh, That was uh, that was Colonel Philip Corso, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso, who, was, uh, who wrote The Day After Roswell. He was the... Corso was an amazing guy. Corso was the military governor of Italy. He was the one that actually exposed the, the – he's the one that pushed the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I mean, we talk about Philip Corso as an amazing person, but, uh, yeah, he's the one that wrote Day After Roswell. Oh, I thought you had help write that. No, 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 no. I wish. I, you know, that was probably the greatest books you should ever read on this topic are The Day After Roswell and then my books, uh, Sands of Time, if you, want the, uh, if you want the real deal. Yeah, The Sands uh, of Time, that's – that's another that for sure, obviously that's your book. However, I'm yes. not exactly sure where I got the day after Roswell from. I, I don't know, probably it's a, it's a, it's an amazing book and yes. everybody should read it. It should be, it should be required reading in every college and university. Well, that, that's true. I'm not going to deny that at all. But yes, you're also well known for predictions and yes, sir. all sorts of things. But before we even get into any of that, I'm just curious, what exactly was it that opened your eyes? And made you think outside the proverbial box into all these, all these topics, because I'm sure there was a time many, many moons ago when you were young, when none of these things were really, I guess you can say in your mind at one time, correct? Well, I had a pretty eclectic upbringing. Um, we, my dad was, uh, he was one of the vice presidents. He was a vice president for customer communications for TRW. And which later was then bought by Northrop Grumman. And uh, all these people are talking about the private space program. Well, it's always been a private space program. NASA used private contractors to build everything. And TRW was building the, you know, the Apollo lunar module. It was building the Saturn V, the, you know, the Titan rockets. And so when I was a kid, since my dad, my dad used to be a pilot in the Navy. My grandfather was also a pilot in the Navy. And uh, so I grew up with all the astronauts, all the Gemini the Gemini, Mercury, and Apollo astronauts were always around the house. 
at the same time, my, my dad was involved with, you know, public relations. So we were in Hollywood. So, uh, we were connected to, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies and laughing and people that were actors on those. So, you know, as a kid, I got to grow up on movie sets and, you know, bet the kids in the neighborhood a quarter that Gordon Cooper was sleeping on my couch. And, um, so it was pretty fun. I mean, and, and, and actually growing up with the astronauts, uh, Gus Grissom, who was like a, a dad to me, uh, I started having horrible visions of Gus's death and like grabbing onto his leg and, you know, trying to keep him from leaving the house and all this. And parents were saying, well, don't upset him. And, and of course, Gus, uh, was burned alive in Apollo one. And I had vivid dreams and, and visions of that happening. But my grandmother also was from Ireland. And so she realized that I had a bit of the second sight. So she would help me with it. You know, I still remember, you know, getting caught with my first deck of tarot cards and, you know, having my parents drag me down to the church to perform an exorcism on me. But I also had, uh, you know, I had an uncle that was an astrologer for the Beatles and, uh, uh, my stepdad, Frank Salomon was also a very, very, very wealthy businessman in Northern California. So we just had a lot of, you know, interesting people around the house. As far as the, the psychic stuff went, uh, I'd always been drawn towards spirituality. Actually, I lived in Egypt when I was a kid. I went to school in Egypt. And in Egypt, one of my teachers at the British International School there was, uh, was a Hindu Swami from the Himalayas, uh, Swami Sri Jaya. So he came to the United States and he and I, when I was 19, we lived together, uh, in our house up in Lake Tahoe. And, uh, he taught me Hatha yoga and, uh, meditation techniques and, and tarot and palmistry and, and, uh, you know, was one of those people that could kind of float in the air and one of those people that would call in his spiritual master and like the head of his spiritual master would appear in the living room. He was, he was the real deal. So that's kind of when I got into the, you know, the Hindu mysticism part of it, which then led me to go to Dharamsala to learn Tibetan Buddhism and then eventually led me to, uh, going to, uh, Tangbache. And when I showed up, I had a letter from the Dalai Lama and they didn't even look at it. They just said, well, you've been here before. You're back now. Uh, you can stay as long as you want, you know, you'll be here for a while and we'll teach you whatever it is we can teach you. So combining that and it all, it, it did all kind of start with the Bible. It did start with, uh, you know, we were, we were Catholics and then we were Lutherans. Being Catholic means you got beat up by big Irish nuns. <laughs> Lutheran means you got beat up by big yeah. German nuns. Uh, and then we were fundamentalist born again Christians, but uh, not, not the cheesy 700 club stuff, even though my mom was actually on the 700 club for a long time. But, uh, fundamentalist studying the Bible in its original languages. I don't know what you'd even call it now, like four square or something, but, uh, but I had to listen to Bible tapes like an hour a day, 360 days out of the year. Jeez. I didn't mind it. Well, what I was had that? A lot, but, yeah. What was that like for you? Uh, you know, I do sports and I'd get home from sports and I'd do my homework and listen to my Bible tape while I'm listening to my homework. My, oh, we had okay. the old, we had the old, the old, uh, uh, remember the old reel to reel? Remember those with the, with yes. the spools of tape on it? We had one of those. And before I could eat, my mother would make me do this report on what my Bible tape was about and, uh, you know, oh, do a verse okay. and do whatever else. But, I mean, that's, that's, my mother was pretty fanatical, but, uh, I didn't mind it because it was, it, it taught you, it taught me history. It taught me the original languages. It taught me, uh, you know, we'd have a, the, uh, Robert theme was the guy and he would say, well, we're going to go back and we're going to take this verse apart. So, um, you know, I always think that studying Bible doctrine makes you smarter and because you get a, you get an idea. The two things I, I say everybody should study is the Grecian myths and, uh, and the Bible because each one is what Western civilization is really based on. And when you have an understanding of, of biblical concepts, you, you can understand everything else that's going on, politics and, and, you know, the, the, the great angelic conflict going on between good and evil and the final where it's all going and, and so, uh, you know, I always think that if you, if you speak the truth, 
that that gives you the power of prophecy that is as much as you can speak truth that that prophetic ability kind of comes because then the universe actually kind of molds itself around what you say as long as you keep that throat chakra clear. Yes, and correction here. The the book that I first had heard of you through was The Gulf Breeze Prophecy. Oh, yeah, there you go. Wow, that's yes. still... I, I don't... I, like Again, I'm still just thinking back, why did I even have the whole Roswell book in my head? Um, but see, this is what happens when you don't have notes in front of you. <laughs> well, it's, we're all flying by the seat of our pants. No, The Gulf Breeze right. Prophecies, that's an interesting thing there because... uh Wow, that was just a manuscript that I put together that still, uh, you know, I, I went into some bookstores and actually, I mean, it's you, you, won't, like, you won't be able to find it through Amazon. I know that. Oh, no, but I mean, I went up to the, the, the famous bookstore in Portland, I think it is, mm-hmm. and they had a copy for like 800 bucks and, uh, uh, it's, it's considered rare. Actually, the first, the first edition, the hardback collector's copy edition of Sands of Time, which includes books one and two, I'm not kidding, is selling for almost $2,800 on, on uh, Amazon and eBay. Oh, really? And, and people that were looking for my book saw this and they said, you got to be kidding me. They said, pay 2800 bucks for a book. I mean, it started out at like 400 and then it just kept going up. So, uh, and, and people probably didn't buy Santa time because they saw that the hardcover was selling for this crazy amount of money. But yeah, yeah that's, that's how valuable the book is. And the problem is we we have the books now. So if anybody wants to come to our website, strangeuniverseradio.com, or on Amazon, uh, every time we do a big mass printing of the books, uh, we run out. So, uh, you know, right now my, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're actually fulfilling orders of people out there for, uh, for volume one, two, and three. Cause what I did is I took book one and I divided it up into two paperbacks, uh, because it was just 750 pages, small print, and it was just too much for people. Now, if they get book one, Sands of Time book one, now they can see how amazing it is and, and get involved with it. And then, you know, of course, order books two and three. My other books are, uh, Black Seraph, which is all about the Vatican. It's about a guy who works as an assassin, really, for the Vatican. And kind of my masterpiece, which, you know, still is out of print, uh, but it's called The Dark Prophet, Veil of the Antichrist. And it was my projection. I wrote this book back in 2009, my projection of what would happen if the 12th Imam, which is the, I guess you could say the Antichrist or the coming Messiah for Islam, what happens if he were to appear and unite Islam together? And in that book, I predicted that they would begin to massively invade Europe through uncontrolled immigration and that through that they would begin to basically tear down the uh, European culture and tear down society and whatever else. So that's the uh, – uh, by invading Cordoba, Spain. Cordoba, Spain was the place the, – the last place that the, really the Muslims had a foothold in Europe before they were driven out by uh, Charles the Hammer Martel. Which is who the French need now. They need, they need somebody like Charles the Hammer Martel to basically, you know, drive these invaders out of Europe. Marseille, you can't even walk the streets anymore. Southern France is just, you know, is just gone. Uh, so we'll see what the French do about that. Oh yes. And I'm going to ask you about the Vatican a little later here. Sure. We've got all kinds of information on that. Very interesting. Oh yes, you know, it they, is. They, they do run the world. I don't know if you know this or not, but, uh, I, I was looking into the corporation of the United States of America. And if you actually go on, uh, there's a website called Manta.com, M-A-N-T-A, that actually lists like 60 million, uh, companies and corporations around the world. And if you just look up, you know, government of the United States and it comes up as a, as a corporation with 2.7 million employees with three main executives at 1500 Pennsylvania Avenue, which is the capital, but it lists as the CEO and owner of the federal corporation is Archbishop Derek McLeod. 
hmm. of the of the Catholic Archdiocese on Michigan and Fourth Street. You can look it up. It's right there. Yes, I'll, I'll do that in a moment here. But okay. yes, there, there's a couple of pressing issues here I have to ask sure. you about. With sure. respect, Mr. Morin, I wanted to inquire about the health of your wife, Melissa. Is she okay? She's recovering slowly. She had a stroke uh, back in April, and uh, she she has uh, arachnoid cysts, is what they call it, in her brain that, oh, that expand. Well, Ur- Urban Meyer had the same thing. That's why he quit, I think, his coach of, of I don't know if it's Utah or whatever else. Of course, he's back coaching now. But, uh, yeah, she has, she also has a, a kind of a heart flutter. And so due to the pressure of various circumstances going on, she yes. had a stroke. She was in the, uh, she was in the, uh, she was taking the, yeah. the ICU. She was, she, she collapsed. Was, yeah. She was in a coma for two days and, uh, she finally came and she had it. She got intubated because she was non-responsive. She wasn't breathing for four minutes. Uh, you know, she said oh it was my. interesting. She said she just wanted to die, but then she actually said she felt the presence of our friend Daniel Brinkley, actually, who oh, really? just kind of kind of kept her in her body and said, you know, it's okay. Daniel's a pretty really interesting sort of mystical guy, and of course he's been he's been dead like four or five times. I guess. <laughs> and yes. uh, you know, heaven won't take him, and hell thinks he'll <laughs> take over. It's, uh, I have a jo- I have a joke about him. I uh. say, you're like a you're like a cat with nine lives. And the reason cats have nine <laughs> lives is is that when they get to heaven, St. Peter opens the gate and he goes, are you coming in or are you going out? That's you coming too in funny. Or are you going out? Because if you're going out, you're staying out. And then they meow, and they go back to where they came from. Yes, yeah, I'm terribly sorry to hear about that. I, I really do not like to hear about that sort of thing happening oh, to anyone. She's getting, she's getting better. She's, uh, she's got some paralysis in her hand. She's got a flutter in her eye. Uh, she's, you know, just very slowly, slowly but surely, you know, kind of coming back from it. So it's, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, but thank you for asking. It's very, very kind of you. And, uh, we, that's why we put the GoFundMe site up. GoFundMe. I was going to uh, ask you. Yes. I was going to ask yeah. you about that. Go ahead. Forward slash, uh, help Sean and Melissa. So, you know, help us out with, uh, some medical bills and some challenges that we've had here. And, uh, and, or you can help us if people want to get, uh, you know, if they want to get my astrology and tarot psychic readings as well. Uh, I used to be on TV. I was in the commercials for the psychic hotlines with, uh, Kenny Kingston and Cabrina Kincaid and back Dion, in the day. Dion Warwick was, was, you know, for the 976 numbers that weren't the sex lines that were the actual psychic lines. But Dion Warwick, I could never understand because she couldn't even find her way to San Jose. And yet she's telling people to call <laughs> the psychic hotline. By the way, <laughs> do hotlines still exist nowadays? Now, now it's all internet stuff now. I don't know. It's, I, you uh, know, I wonder if there, are, if that sort of thing does exist. I remember back in the nineties, that was kind of all the rage and there was even something called like a, a party chat. I was part it was, it was a, there was a, the guy that owned the thing that I worked for, I worked for a couple of different companies, but this guy was a mailman oh, and okay. you know, he put all his money into, uh, I think his name was Mo something, Mo mm-hmm. Green or something weird. But, uh, I still remember him, my doing a reading for somebody and hanging up and, and looking over my shoulder. And this, and having this guy go, you can really do this, can't you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, wow. And, and of course they invested more money in the psychic hotlines because it kept people on the phone for an average of about 10 to 15 minutes because you were telling them a story about themselves as opposed to the sex lines where <laughs> they lasted oh, my, about yes. five minutes. And then I kind of gave it up because then they decided to, uh, the space where we were, the psychics, they decided to move the sex line girls in and put them into the other side of the room. Uh, and then they wanted me to teach the sex line girls tarot. Oh, Lord. You know, so they could say, I see in your future that you need a spanking or something. You know, oh. it's just, it got, it got beyond the pale. It was crazy. It, those sound like wild times. Yeah, that was interesting. But, you know, it, I, I think I helped a lot of people and 
I used to have this one woman who called me and said, Oh, Mr. Psychic Man, where my, my husband, my husband took my car and left me with all these children and whacked me in the head with a frying pan. But I wants to know, does he love me? <laughs> oh like, my, yes. Was, was it the good frying pan? It's a $37 Tupperware frying pan. He loves you. Oh, tell me, Mr. Psychic Man, where's my husband coming home? Isn't that, and, isn't that odd, Sean, that we live well, I had in... a joke. You want to hear the end of the joke? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the end go of ahead. the joke is, when my husband coming home, I said, does he have a job? No. Do you? Yes. When do you get paid? Friday. I see that he'll be coming back Friday. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mr. Psychic Man. And I get a call. I get the call the next week. Oh, you were so rotten. And he hit me in the head with a frying pan again. So this was, this was what, this is when they it used to move yes. through Arkansas and Alabama and all these other places. And all, look, all people really want to know about is, you know, where's my money and where's my honey? It, it's mostly about getting laid, getting paid. For sure. So, and <laughs> you know, about that, I was, I was just curious to ask you this since it just popped in my head. Why, why is it that we live in a society today where it kind of seems like some women, um, they go through this domestic abuse and they'll stay with the guy most of the time. Well, I don't know. I'm not. Isn't know, that I'm weird? Not a, not a woman that has that that has that complex. But you know, on the one hand, I guess they think that you know, better the better the monster you have, better the monster you know than the monster you don't. I just don't understand uh, the mentality of some women today that have that mindset. Well, I just did a story on my radio show today. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, I just I just did a story about these. Uh, these upscale kind of sapphic tribadistic uh lesbian parties in Ooh. London, New York and Los Angeles uh which is called uh uh oh a skirt skirt club I think is what it is and and so all these you know these lipstick lesbians get together they put like electrical tape on their nipples or whatever they dress in these crazy outfits and the whole thing is kind of a it's all an S&M dominance and submission sort of deal. And I'm thinking, okay, here's all these women that want to be liberated, want to be free, don't want men telling them what to do. And yet they come to these big mm. parties where they play master yes. and slave girl. Wow. And I'm like, okay, this is just, you know, so I read this whole article about these upscale parties and, you know, these 150 women that all get together and I guess slurp on each other, uh, you know, and rub up against each other, you know, without the men. And the large majority of them are heterosexual, but, you know, bi-curious or what have you. It's just, it's, you know, the joke is, you know, Roddy Dangerfield's guys said, uh, oh, you know, oh, all the women I know are bisexual. I buy them something, they get sexual. <laughs> oh, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, I, I don't know. I don't, the psychology is, is that I, I, I do think that society is, is really out of whack. And, uh, I think it's funny to me to look at Donald Trump and watch all these women that hate Donald Trump. And then I just say, well, you hate him, I think, just because he's a man, because he's not, he's not some wimpified. If you look at Bill Clinton and you look at, you know, even George Bush and, and, you know, and Obama, they're, you know, they're kind of questionably, uh, there's a, there's a, first off, Obama had sort of a questionable sexuality to begin with. And I'm convinced one of the great mysteries of our time, of our decade, uh, has to be the Great Pyramids, the Bermuda Triangle, and what the hell is going on in Michelle Obama's underpants. I think that's. <laughs> oh, how dare you, Sean? It's <laughs> a big mystery. <laughs> how goddamn dare you? So there you go. So. Whatever. Yes. So, Sean. I, I'm curious, what's gonna happen with you ultimately here? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that, uh, is everything, you know, you know. well, we'll see. It's, we'll see. You know, we'll just, ultimately we'll find out, right? Of, you know, whatever's gonna come down. It's, uh, uh, I have defenses in place. So I have, uh, you know, certain things that, that I'm doing that, you know, that have to do with, uh, it's, it's, it just depends on how much they want to break the law. So, you know. That's, that's all I can tell you. Understood. Yeah. Yes. It's, and, uh, 
they look, I have, I mean, I have this, this whole thing had to do with IRS and presenting, you know, uh, presenting, uh, non-negotiable monetary instruments to set off, settle and discharge debt. Uh, I mean, I have a letter from the IRS. I, I, I wrote a FOIA request, the IRS and the IRS wrote me a letter that said, uh, we have no claim against you. And what I'm guilty of is filing, according to them, is just filing paperwork. And then the U.S. Treasury issued me a check. Now, they claimed that it was simply a computer error on this part. They never said it was criminal, never said it was illegal. They said it was a, quote, erroneous refund. Well, you get a refund. You not only get a refund, but you get a, a letter that says, we've audited it. We're going to give you $500 more. Here are these other tax returns we're just checking against, but we owe you more money. So I cashed the check and spent it primarily investing in a film company. Which means that you know all the you know all the all the money's gone. Understood. And then they're and then they're trying to say, well, you did something wrong. And I said, wait a minute, I filled out all your paperwork. You issued me the check. If you don't want me to have the check, then you shouldn't issue me the check. And then they're like, well, six months later, they turned around once again, telling me that, that I didn't do anything illegal. I'm trying to be writing letters back and forth saying, well, if I did something wrong, tell me. Um, and I didn't. And then the other thing that's crazy is we were helping trying to, and this is a, ca- a case of 13 people that were my friends and family mm, that all we, all we did with this was people were trying to do another process with their mortgages or with their credit cards. And again, we're in a society where there's no lawful gold or silver under article one, section 10. And when in 1933 to 35, they took away gold and silver, they had to get, they borrowed against the credit of the people. So now instead of gold and silver having being the monetary instrument, the people are now the credit of the nation. So what they did is they just bundled all these 14th Amendment U.S. citizens and handed that cattle, those slaves, as collateral for the bankruptcy to the Federal Reserve. There's a guy named Louis McFadden, who was a congressman out of Ohio, who then sued everybody for high crimes and misdemeanors in the in the House and the Senate, saying you can't do this. You can't just hand people over to the feds without giving them something in return. And this became the famous uh, – House Joint Resolution 192 that was passed June 5th of 1933 that in essence said that because the people's credit is being borrowed against that the people should be able to, uh, settle, offset, and discharge debt. Yes. Now remember, it's your, mm-hmm. it's your signature that creates this stuff into existence in the first place. You sign a mortgage document, they take it to the Federal Reserve window, they sprinkle magic pixie dust on it, and they borrow against your sweat equity to then loan you money. And by the way, then they take that mortgage and they sell it on the secondary bond market and turn it into QCIP numbers, which then get rolled into massive investment funds, which happens with court cases as well. Um, and, and by the time the door hits you in the butt on the way out, they've, they've made their money back. Then they, you know, so they chop off your arm, feed you your fingers and say, Oh, thank you very much. So how is it, how, how is it you're submitting, you're submitting a monetary instrument that's non-negotiable. That is for the set off, settle and discharge of a debt that comes with that, that is, that is certified by the county, apostilled by the state, has a big, big blue paper on it, apostilled by the state that comes with a request for a letter of advice saying, can you please submit this to your attorneys and have your attorneys write us a letter to say if there's anything deficient with this instrument. Then under the uniform commercial code where tacit acquiescence, you have, you have a, a, a fiduciary moral and legal aspect to respond. A notary, as the third-party intervener, writes a letter that says, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to cash this or are you, or are you going to give it back to it? You get no response. That's, call, that's called an opportunity of opportunity, – opportunity, uh, mm. notice of fault, opportunity to cure. Yes. Okay, you haven't returned it. So, okay, to cure it, just send it back. Nothing. 
And then the next one is notice of notice of default. And then the final notice, all under the Uniform Commercial Code, is is a notice of default and dishonor. All right, look, we're in agreement. You've accepted this monetary instrument. Therefore, you need to set off the debt. So there it is. And, and and here's the crazy part. The crazy part is, in this entire case, the mighty Department of Justice, the United States government, with all its subpoena power, could not produce a single original document. Because the banks, our argument was, you can't do this. This is all hearsay. The the banks have these instruments. They've put them on deposit, and they won't give them back. And there's three other court cases where people press this, and they just, you know, the judges get up and say, well, this is just worthless paper. And we say, well, to you it's worthless paper, but to the banks it's not. That's like saying a Superman one comic book yeah. It's worth like $3 million. Well, to my mom, it's useless paper. It's just colored paper that takes up space and needs to be thrown away or a Joe DiMaggio baseball card. And you send that as a payment of debt to somebody saying, well, here, this should pay off the million dollars. And they send you back a copy and say, thanks, but no thanks. They're like, wait, wait a minute. Where's my comic book? Where's my baseball card? And they keep it and they've put them on deposit. And that's exactly what they do with the mortgages. They take the mortgages, make a certified copy, Put that in the vault and then they sell the mortgage on the, on the bond market. So try to get your mortgage back in court. It doesn't exist anymore. And yet the courts are not demanding that, uh, you know, the courts are not, the courts are not demanding original documents of anything. So now the DOJ and they really had to bend over backwards and shove their heads up their ass to be able to figure <laughs> this out. But now they're saying they're, they're trying to say that, that by simply presenting paper that you just send back, that that's now conspiracy to defraud the United States. Oh my. That's yes, it. I see. That's it. By the way, no monetary damages. Nobody was harmed. You know, there were 13 people that reimbursed us for our time. And at the same time, I said, look, I don't know if this is going to work. I can't make you any guarantees. You know, you're going to pay us for the time to actually put put this together. And if the bank sends the bond back, I'll give you, I'll give you all the money back. You know, and, and everybody who tried to do this demanded the bond be returned and just got stonewalled by the banks. And not even the courts under subpoena power will actually produce these bonds because in, in my opinion, they're, they're all sitting on deposit and they're all being used, which is why they won't produce them or return them, by the way. And that's their case. That's what, you know, that I, they issued me a check that I filled out what I thought was the proper paperwork with a CPA and because the CPA filled the whole thing out. The CPA, by the way, he got $14 million back for his clients and the, all the IRS did with him was wow. get an, inju- an injunction to make him stop filing the IRS's paperwork to get people refunds. My goodness. This is how bad it is. Yeah, it's, no, that's in, yeah. That's case of Alexander Adams, there was another woman named uh, Louisa Quelo who also got $9 million back for her clients uh, as well, and the IRS sues them civilly to say, we want you to stop filing this paperwork. Because the whole point of it is that every dime you put in the bank, you're the original issuer of that fund, if you will, of, of money you put in the bank. Well, what does the bank do with your money? If you put $100 in the bank, the bank can then loan out, or if you put a dollar in the bank, the bank fractionally fractionalizes it. Right. They can loan out now 99 cents. They only need one penny in the bank. 99 cents on that. So where'd all those profits go? You're the one, you're the one making the investment. If you put, if you did that for the stock market and Dean Witter or Merrill Lynch or something like did that to you, they'd all go to jail, but the banks can do it all day. So, which is why, because they've got the, they've got the mandate from the constitutional amendment and all that stuff for the Federal Reserve to do what it does. And, you know, it's the Federal Reserve system that I believe that when the Federal Reserve and the IRS is put into place, I'm convinced that that's the second horseman of the apocalypse. That the first horseman was the white horse with the rider with the bow and arrow that was, that represented a, 
massive influx of cosmic consciousness coming across the world around the turn of the century. Then they had to stop that, and the black horse who carries the, the horseman carries the scales. That's the Babylonian banking system or the reestablishment of fractional interest banking, which then allowed them to float currency to finance war. And that's what made the 20th century nothing but a, a, a 100 year war that's still going on and a massive abattoir that killed hundreds of millions of people. And then the second, the less, the next horse is, is war, the red horse of war, which is the first world war. And then the second world war, which is an extension of that. And then Korea and then Vietnam and then the cold war, which is all an extension of all of that. And then the final, the final horse, oddly enough, and can relate this all the way back to the turn of the century was the, uh, the green or the pale or the livid horse of plague. So you could say that that already happened because you know, the only reason the first world war stopped was because everybody's dying of, of Spanish flu, hundred million people. I think about 10 million people here in the United States, but 100 million people died of Spanish influenza, which was probably some kind of weapon that was released. I think they traced it down to patient zero in in Ireland someplace. But, uh, uh, but yeah, so there, you know, there's your four horse in the apocalypse Mm -hmm. right there. That's an interesting perspective to have. And to wrap up all the IRS talk, I, I don't like the IRS personally. I don't think anyone really does. And I do wish you all the best in, in this, in this, um, strange case that that's going on well again when you got you know when you have letters from the irs that say we have no claim against you and and it was you know it was an erroneous refund from the beginning and then these people managed to get that look you know the jury in the case was just you know they might as well just have rounded up cattle and put them in a pen because it was i'm not kidding they asked them how long have you lived in los angeles county and three people answered 35 minutes 45 minutes and an hour and a half interesting my goodness! How long did it take you to get here? (laughs) That's uh, how bad it was. And I was like, "We're just the the judge they found was a former federal tax prosecutor that is just you know who's just got the the bit in his teeth, which we're complaining. You know, we're complaining in the Ninth Circuit Court. You know, we're doing all kinds of crazy stuff here. So, and not crazy stuff, but things that are perfectly lawful and legal. um, You know, to set off, settle, and discharge this whole thing." Yes, and let's move on here. I, I do thank you for sharing that with me, though. I think many people are completely curious about what's going on with you, Sean. Well, thank you for their curiosity, and, and just understand what a massive miscarriage of judgments this is. And uh, in regards to my wife, my wife was actually paying her taxes on her job, and got and and actually the IRS sent her notices that she was zeroed out and owed them nothing. So you know they're they're working on a new trial for her. Because nobody did anything wrong. I mean, it was it was she got a notice from the IRS that zero, you owe us zero, nothing, zippo, nada. And you know, the next time we interacted with them, they were they were basically dragging her with her bad knee and throwing her wheelchair across oh, the room no. and, and you know beating her up, uh, putting you know putting rifles in her face for what? Because they they raided our house because they wanted records because we sell a litter of kittens every now and then. And that's how bad it was. They wanted cat records. Wow. Because because we have Norwegian forest cats and people like them, and whenever we have a litter, we sell them to people. Yes. So, and that's that's our big crime. I see. Again, I, I wish you both all the best. I, I hope both of you are able to get through this thing together. Well, let's talk about some yes. good things. Yes. Well, you know, there's really not too many other positive things going on around the world, as you oh, clearly know. I, no, I disagree. Know. I, I disagree. I think um, – no, it's well. Look at it this way. I mean, look at you know when I was a kid growing up, we were looking at mutually assured destruction and global thermonuclear war with the Russians and the. Well, Chinese has it has that all, has that really all changed today in modern time? 
Kinda. I mean, look at it. There's not a. There's it not seems really like we're, a, It seems like we're just fighting nonstop. Well, look at it this way. Look at look at the the, the budget of the Pentagon and the military industrial complex here. The budget of the Pentagon for one year, and you never hear this. It's six hundred fifty billion dollars, which makes up fifty percent of everything that the that the federal government spends. Right. Which is also, by the way, if you took the budgets of all fifty states combined, the military budget is more than that. So that's what gives you an idea of how much they spend and have been spending for the for the last seventy five years. So when you talk about the secret space program and you talk about underground bases and you talk about hypersonic train systems that crisscross underground and people say, where do they get all the money? I'm just like, God, you know, they just lost three and a half trillion dollars. And they were like, oops, uh, you know, where'd that go? So um, if you look at the military industrial complex, again, and Donald Trump actually did say this, that for the amount of money we spent on, you know, Iraq and all these wars and Mesopotamia and all that stuff. I mean, you could have paved the streets with gold when gold was, you know, maybe 450 bucks. So, um, no, I think the, uh, look, I predicted that Donald Trump would win the election. I predicted it like a year in advance. Uh, I told everybody, I've been telling everybody for the last 16 years now that, that Hillary Clinton would never, ever, never, ever become president of the United States, that it was never going to happen for her. And I took all kinds of heat when Trump was going to get trounced and the media was telling all this other crap. And I kept saying, he's going to win. He's going to win the election. They they can't afford to have Hillary as president because she's the tip of the iceberg of so much crime that if they start investigating her, then then you pull the plug on the entire swamp. And I do want to thank you for doing that segue for me because these questions I have are in regards to all of these things. Go ahead. Continue. Okay. Well, what questions do you have about it? It's uh Oh, yes. Well, including her those emails that were leaked and I, I did want to ask your opinion on the murder of Seth Rich. I know you are... Familiar with that, correct? Well, Seth Rich was okay. Well, here's how it went down. I'm going to tell you exactly how it went down. What Go ahead. Was yes. That, is that is that Seth Rich was the leaker to WikiLeaks? He he leaked. Uh, my goodness, about sixty thousand emails. He was mm-hmm. angry because what he was seeing under Debbie Wasser, Wasserman Schmidt and Hillary Clinton was that they were completely they were completely derailing and any other term you want to sabotage Bernie Sanders. And he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And um, so he, uh, there's a, a, so he contacted a guy named Kim.com, which is actually this guy's name. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. un- under the name of. Um, Interesting character too. Something Panda, I think was his. Uh, Panda. Panda was mm-hmm. That was his nickname. Yeah, Seth Rich's codename, I think, or handle was Panda. Uh, he was the one actually responsible for the for the leak to WikiLeaks, not the Russians. And even Julian Assange said, "I'm not going to reveal my source, but it's not the Russians. It's not a government state. Not whatever." When they found out this happened, uh, Podesta. Okay, so Debbie Wasserman Schmidt gets gets all these leaks come down. Uh, the Democrats say that all the emails are fake. They came out and said they were fake, and then the FBI comes along and says, "Oh no, they're real." So they had to pick which one they wanted. They, are they all fake or not? Uh, when Podesta takes over the DNC, Podesta then sends kind of a smoking gun email that says, well, if we have leakers, I'm more than willing to make an example out of one of them. And that's what I was going to tell you. Yes, I, yeah. I clearly remember that when these these emails were first being leaked about Podesta um, saying something like that, that he was all for leakers being made uh, uh, an example of. Well, if Podesta's a. Oh my God, he's, he's a strange a, character too. He's a, he's a squirming bag of maggots, that guy. He's just he's the worst ever. He's a he's a big fan of Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, he has artwork in his house that was inspired by Def, Jeffrey Dahmer murder photographs. Uh, he supports a you know this other artist who who is has creepy like full life foam statues 
of monstrous creatures like making love to little children. And please mm-hmm. remember, the Pizzagate stuff that the fake news guys uh, were all up in arms about, we didn't make that stuff up. We didn't make the Pizzagate stuff up. The FBI had a lexicon of how pedophiles would communicate with each other, like, you know, hot dogs and, and pizza and, you know, let's have a pizza party and the different things for young boys and young girls and teenage girls and teenage boys and the whole thing. It wasn't like people in the alternative media made it up. They were all in Podesta's emails when the FBI was saying, look, we have a lexicon of all this pedophile talk uh, outside of the fact that, you know, Podesta and his brother were actually allegedly uh, uh, into the, they were, they were allegedly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, there was a, there was a young girl that disappeared that uh, there was rumors that allegedly that Podesta and his brother had actually kidnapped this girl for some kind of ritual or something. But, uh, but yeah, this Podesta who came head of the DNC. So Seth Rich is walking home one night. He's shot in the back twice. Uh, one bullet actually goes through his right side. The other bullet, because it's a hollow point, uh, actually then fragments inside his body. He's then taken to George Washington Hospital, if I remember correctly. I'm just off the top of my head, where they're experts at gunshot wounds because it's D.C. Uh, you don't remember their their basketball team used to be called the, the D.C. Bullets. Right. And they had to change the name to the Wizards, which I'm not sure is much better. But um, uh, Seth Rich was, was tended to in the ICU. They got the bullets out. They got out the fragments. He was in stable condition and uh, is still in the ICU, but getting ready to be checked out of the ICU because he was going to live, going to survive. Then what happened was a bunch of these VIP people show up, a bunch of guys in black suits and sunglasses, white shirts, black ties, the whole thing. All these VIPs then show up to visit Seth Rich's room, and Seth Rich dies without a code being called, I might add, because if something were to happen, so which means that somebody unplugged him from the uh, you know from the main floor because if his vitals were to drop or he was the flatline, they would immediately bring in a crash cart that has the defibrillator plate, you know, everything that you've seen on TV. None of that happened. He just dies without without a code being called at all. And with one of the interns actually there, or one of the doctor interns actually, actually then tweeting anonymously saying, you know, look, this is what happened. You know, I was there. I was in the room. He was stable. He was going to be fine. He was going to live until all these people showed up. And I found out the next day that he was dead without any sort of code, without anything being called. So then the family that's then being paid off by the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, they've been complaining, right? Yeah, well, well but they're paid off by the, by the committee to say, oh, nothing, nothing happened. And oh, it was just a, just a thing and, you know, whatever else. So now the private investigator that they hired, he finds all this stuff and then breaks with the family to say, look, this was, this kid was murdered. I might also point out that the hit team that actually killed him was arrested by the FBI and by, uh, uh, by DHS about three or four days later. That was, and that's another reason why, uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, Hillary couldn't take down a bunch of the people that she wanted to kill. If you just look at, I mean, I, I think it might stuff. be safe to say it was definitely a hit. I mean, nothing was stolen from him and no one yeah. heard the gunshot, which of course that leads me to speculate that there was a silencer that was used. Absolutely. Right. And again, wallet intact, Rolex watch intact. You know, Seth, Seth came from a, he came from a fairly, he comes from, came from, you know, fairly wealthy family. And it's, uh, and then when, look what happens when, uh, when Sean Hannity, they've already managed to get rid of Bill O'Reilly because, you know, Mr. Hands, uh, they've got tired of paying all the sexual lawsuits and now Fox's ratings have tanked. Now they're the third network behind, oh my God, CNN and MSNBC, um, which stands for mostly saying nothing but crap, MSNBC, and CNN is the Clinton News, news Network. So, um, uh, but Fox is now tanked when they fired Bill O'Reilly. Sean Hannity 
gets a bunch of crap because he's reporting stories not only from Kim.com but from the private investigator, and now they're threatening him. I was surprised to hear that, by the way, Mr. Sean Hannity being the only one in mainstream media talking about Seth Rich. You Well, because of the threats, because of the, uh, you know, once again, their whole, quote, fake news thing uh, is, uh, you know, the, the, this lockstep control they have over the media. Now it's getting worse because now you have people like Zuckerberg. You've got people like Eric Schmidt. Uh, you know, Eric, Eric Schmidt, by the way, the head of Google was my next door neighbor when I when I was growing up. And he bought my mother's house. Oh, wow. When she, when she died. So in the entire evil empire is being run out of my bedroom <laughs> at, yes. uh, at 368 Walsh Road, Atherton, California. So um, uh, we actually, when the Clintons would come visit him from my balcony, we could watch down into his yard and we saw Elton John playing the piano to Bill and Hillary while were my they, mother was screaming things like communists and all that stuff. So, were they so. friends of Jeffrey Epstein? Oh yeah. Oh they're, yeah, they're all pals. So, oh, you know, and no. again, Sean. Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton goes to Pedophile Island 36 times. The Hillary Little Lita Express, six. my goodness. Yeah, Hillary went there six times. Um, she went there six times? Yeah, six times. She went six times. Oh, and then, my uh, goodness. And then there's one girl that came out about it. I don't know if Trump ever went. Um, Apparently, he he did take he a went, visit I think, there. I think he went once. I think he went once. It was, you know, it was a big deal. He was, you know, what he was doing was he was, uh, he was hiring teenage girls over the age of 16. He was paying them tens of thousands of dollars to get on a private jet to go to a private island to schmooze up a bunch of old guys. So yeah, and these <laughs> are and these are our world leaders, Sean. And it, it makes me think, who can we really trust? We we both know both sides are corrupted. We know that quite well. And, Sean, I must tell you, I don't have a proverbial dog in the fight. And that's the reason why I get lots of heat here on the program. I'm not exactly for supporting any of the king's men. Well, let me let me put it to you this way. Let me put the reality to you this way. Nobody achieves a position of power. And not just the United States, but the world without being guilty of some great crime. Of course, yeah. Because that's how they get the leash on you. That's how I think it probably starts all the way back at Skull and Bones where, you know, I think George Bush was supposed to, uh, George Bush Sr. now going all the way back was supposed to dig up the bones of Geronimo and then, you know, lay naked in a coffin in a graveyard with like a bow tied around his genitals. And, you know, they take all these pictures of you so that Skull and Bones has control of you. And, uh, you know, I can imagine, you know, Barack Obama was, he was such an empty suit when they decided to, uh, when they decided to make him president. And this is, this is back, this is back at the Bilderberg meeting back in Chantilly, Virginia in uh, May of 2008 when the Bilderberg panel, the way it works is you have 15 guys that nobody really knows. It goes from one to 15. The guy who's got codenamed 15 is like the CEO of planet Earth. And then they let these super rich people Debate their agendas while the Bilderberg panel makes recommendations and, uh, uh, you know, for this. And on one side, you had the Rockefellers and, uh, the Rockefellers, of course, backing Hillary. And they're all, they, they got their, they got their seat at the table by betting on oil at the turn of the century when the Rothschilds got kind of depowered because they were betting on coal and steam. So the Rockefellers really made their fortune doing that. And, but their whole thing is about war. Their whole thing is when you begin to realize that the Soviet Union was a complete hoax. The Soviet Union was a front corporation for the Rockefellers because when the Soviet Union went bankrupt, David Rockefeller was the guy there writing the notes and writing the chits out as the executor of the bankruptcy for the Soviet Union. So when you think about that, you think about that the Soviet Union murdered over 125 million people in its its 79-year reign of terror, you can lay that right at the foot of the Rockefellers. And they wanted Hillary because they wanted to just beat the world down with a stick, 
cause a bunch of war, generate World War III, good for oil profits, kill more people. And on the other hand, you have Barack Obama being backed by being backed by George Soros and the Rothschild faction, where they're like, eh, you know, we don't want the wars, we don't want the destruction. It's very messy; it could get out of hand. But we also think that it's easier to put people in a jail cell if you give them a blanket and a pillow, and you give them some health care, and 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 try to you know goad them into it, you know, use the carrot rather than the stick. And the, and the Clintons were the ones that said, "How can you make this guy president of the United States? He's not even an American." They were the first ones to say that. Soros was like, ah, nobody cares. We'll fix it. We'll we'll fake a birth certificate. We control the media. We can do whatever we want. Let me give you an idea about it, too. They asked Steven Spielberg when he did the movie Lincoln, is there any other American president you want to do a movie about? And Spielberg said, oh, yeah, I would love to do a movie about Barack Obama. Mm. But I had my researchers look into writing a script about it, and we don't know a thing about this guy. We can't find anything in his history that's true. That's Steven Spielberg. So that's why I think it's funny that, that Obama's going to build his presidential library, not in Hawaii, but in Chicago. And I'm just thinking the whole thing is going to be basically a all smoke and mirrors. That's what I heard. It's sponsored by Adobe Photoshop. I think that would be because all the pictures are fake and his family is fake and his education is fake and it's all fake. It's all fake and he fake, fake, fake. His kids are fake. His kids don't have, his kids don't have birth certificates either. His birth certificate, you know, again, was obviously forged. Uh, he looks remarkably good though. For a 147-year-old uh, French immigrant from Connecticut, uh, so <laughs> my goodness, <laughs> look into that because he's got five social security numbers. He's got aliases: Barry Satoro, Harrison J. Bonell, Harry Bonell. I'm not kidding. One of his aliases was Tony D. Tiger, and then Michelle's aliases. She actually used Tyra Banks as one of her aliases. Um, you know, he's got five socials, five social security numbers. We're not sure any of them are real. And this guy's president of the United States. This guy's, you know, this is the, the control that the media has. And I think that that's the power structure that's finally been broken. That so many people understand that the, that the 25,000 forms of media out there that are controlled by six companies that make up 232 people, uh, the American people just got, got tired of being lied to and slapped in the face and, and, you know, having their boots pissed on while the media calls it rain. They just saw how the disaster that following what the media says, it's enemy propaganda. If you just do the opposite of everything the media tells you to do, you'll be okay. I'm, I, hell, I'm thinking about taking up smoking anytime now because they oh, say it's all my. bad for you. It's, you know, a lot of people smoke out there in, in um, Japan, and they seem to live even longer than people here that don't even smoke. Well, they smoke, they smoke three packs of cigarettes a day in China, and they have the lowest lung cancer rate. Why? One, because they do Chinese herbs and acupuncture. Two, because in China, they do not allow tobacco to be cured with sugar. So it's not so much the nicotine and the stripping of B complex out of the body. It's actually the sugar that makes it addictive because we cure all our tobacco here, uh, or most of the rest of the world actually in sugar and the Chinese don't. And it's, I think, I think it has to do more with the sugar aspect of, of curing the tobacco and sugar, but that's that's my opinion. But they still have the lowest lung cancer rate, and they smoke like trains. Yes, the Chinese and the Japanese and the Filipinos that I know, um, they all smoke. I know lots yep. of Asians and different ones, and they all smoke. Well, everybody in the world smokes but us, so <laughs> maybe that's why they're so skinny. <laughs> they all really enjoy their cigarettes, yeah. Yeah, indeed. That's what I noticed. And, you know, going back to the whole Pizzagate thing, you know, I was kind of curious, uh, what's your opinion on this Catholic priest who had HIV and he raped 30 children 
and he was basically acquitted by the Pope from any wrongdoing. Yeah, they 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 take all those guys. Well, remember, there's a big. People, I think there's a big child sex trafficking ring out there that I think the Vatican is involved with. But there's sure. there's been speculation, and I know it's kind of wild and crazy to say that sort of thing here. But if you definitely look into this, you'll see that it's not exactly so far fetched. Uh, no, and you have actually Car- Cardinal Bernard Law who is a, a full-time resident of the Vatican because he escaped uh, uh, child molestation charges. It's it's another tricky sort of thing. It you really people, is. You know how people really run is. the Catholic Church and they, they preach and they go, sanctuary, sanctuary. You understand that Catholic churches are actually consulates for the Vatican and that theoretically, because the Vatican is a nation state, they are consulates. The main, you know, the main embassy, I guess you would say, is the Vatican itself, but they're consulates for the Vatican. Theoretically, Catholic priests become actually Vatican citizens as a, as a nation state. So you have challenges prosecuting them. They have their own kind of private thing. Most of what they do is they, they take the priests that are being chased around for this stuff and they send them to New Mexico, mostly in like Albuquerque and Santa Fe and all these places down there because now you're dealing with a population or Southern California, actually San Diego probably has the, the biggest aspect of these child molesting priests because you're dealing with an immigrant population that doesn't speak English very well. And, you know, if they find out something happens to their kid, who do they go to? They can't go to the cops because they get kicked out of the country. So, you know, and it goes back to the it goes back to the Daniel prophecy. I, on the one hand, I think the mm-hmm. Catholic Church has done a lot of good. I think it's fed the hungry. I think it's housed the, the homeless. I think it's helped, it's helped the sick. But on the other hand, you don't think you that's know, damage control? Not, you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, true, I, mean, I, I guess you're right. Yes, and and you know the Catholic Church has done a massive amount of good worldwide, and you can't just poke at it and say, okay, this priest did that and the other thing. But again, remember that they're they're ambassadors for the Vatican State. They have certain aspects of immunity from that, um, and at the, and and at the same time, you have uh, uh, it is. I think that the Vatican represents the Antichrist that's described in the book of Daniel. I mean, it's very clearly Daniel talks about an organization. He talks about the revival of an empire. He talks about the 10 nation confederation on the city of the seven hills. He talks about them burning 15,000 saints at the stake, which was the Templars. Uh, he talks about them instituting a quote, uni- that it's going to be a universal church, which is even what the word Catholic means, that it would institute a universal language, which is what you know, Latin is. So there's the prophecies of Daniel. The prophecies of Daniel very, very clearly point to the Catholic Church as being the Antichrist. But you, you can also the, the Book of Daniel ends. There's there's 2,300 years of prophecy, and the Book of Daniel ends in 1844. And there was all kinds of stuff that happened in the United States in 1844. You had the uh, uh, you had prophets. You couldn't swing a dead cat over your head without hitting some prophet. <laughs> yes. Uh, you had the formation of the more 1844, 43. You had the formation of the Mormons. In the 1830s and the 1840s, you had the formation of the uh, uh, the spiritualists. Actually, there were more spiritualists at the turn of the century with the Fox sisters in Connecticut than there were Christians listed as spiritualists, people who believed in spiritualism and, you know, channeling of the dead and all that other stuff. Right. Um, and then you had the biggest one was you had a formation of the uh, uh, the Seventh-day Advent, Day Adventists, which were known as the Millerites because biblical prophecy was the was the rock music of its day. I mean, you know, traveling preachers in, in America used to draw crowds of tens of thousands of people. It's still pretty and strong it, here. Still, oh, absolutely. It's still pretty strong. Joel, Joel Osteen has 22,000 people that come to church every Sunday. He bought out the, uh, 
he bought out the Rockets Arena in uh, in Houston. Yeah, that's impressive. And, you know, yeah. And he's just like, it's all, everything's good. Everything, <laughs> have a nice day. It's all, you know, Jesus smiles on you. And, um, but the, you know, the point of all this is, is that, is that it was believed that at the ending of the prophecies of Daniel, that, that the rapture was going to occur. Right. And, and so thousands of people sold everything they had dressed in white on the hillsides and then it didn't happen. And then Miller said, Oh, wait till the spring. And not only was this part of manifest destiny, but all these people that were homeless now, they were the ones that then fueled the Western migration. Uh, and there is a time code in the Great Pyramid of Giza that talks about the, that talks about, that has the great step that goes from 1844 to 1900 and then flattens out. And if you look at the history of man or time in the period between 1844 and, uh, in that, in that, uh, uh, in that period of time between 1900, you have in that one 60 plus period of time, you have, you have more innovation, you have more scientific progress, you have, you have, you have more stuff going on with the world than has happened in the whole history of man's evolution right in that period of time. If you look at the Industrial Revolution and, you know, Fulton and Whitney and Tesla and, and Henry Ford and, and, uh, you know, Thomas Edison and these, you know, these amazing geniuses that occur in this, in this enlightened period, which if you look at it from the Daniel perspective ends the 2300 years, many people thought it was a rapture, but what it was was a rapture in consciousness. It was a rapture of enlightenment. And of course, then what happens then is that it also predicts that, uh, 1914, people go down into war again. And then of course, you know, the 1930s, we have a period of antichrists, which are, you know, what's the Churchill and Hitler and FDR, um, and then we kind of, and then it kind of lights up on us. And, you know, now everything shifted February 21st of 1999. The Great Pyramid says that in the time coding of it, that we're in a 40 year exodus period right now, which has been pretty mild. I mean, you haven't had, you still have the population of the planet at about 7 billion or so and, and getting more. Uh, but there is a feature in the pyramid that is, that is to be possibly this year, 1917, that, that talks about a, a a huge number of people, actually some cosmic event that pushes everybody into the pit mm. in the, uh, in the lower part that happens right about now. I would think it's, it's, it would be between now and, you know, the real disasters that are going to start happening at the beginning of the next decade. Yes. And Sean, that. I was just about to ask you about prophecy and you've also been pretty accurate with your predictions on several earthquakes. And as you know, I'm, uh, we're both here in California and. Right. Back in 2010, there was a 7.2, which I think was stronger. Um, over in my little city called El Centro, right. there, there was a 7.3, a 7.4. I, I believe I had seen 7.4 on my little iPod. Are you talking about? Okay, you're talking about Lander. Okay, okay. So here's the progression of the quakes. You had the you had the Loma Prieta earthquake in '89. Uh, which was San Francisco. I mean, that, that one, not only did I predict, but I had a bunch of people at Mount Shasta on October 1st trying to deflect the quake and work the energy and everybody thought I was nuts. And then it happened 17 days later. Uh, you had the Landers earthquake in 92. That was, uh, that was at the, just after the riots. That was a 7.6. Uh, then you had the Northridge earthquake, which they, tr- well, I'm sorry, the Northridge earthquake, which they tried to say was only about a 6.6 or 6.7, but the epicenter of the quake was almost a 9.2. But it didn't, it didn't spread like regular quakes do. Quakes usually have an epicenter, like a bomb that goes off, but Northridge broke up. It was such a weird quake because here it was a 9.2, there it was an 8, over there it was a 7, and it dove under the mountains and, you know, did all kinds of weird stuff. So, uh, we haven't had an earthquake, we, we haven't had a 7.2 in 2010. It was, it, maybe it was big, maybe it was 5.5 or 6, 
But uh, did you know that, by the way, the reason they kept the, uh, the, the Northridge quake artificially low is because after the, uh, after the San Francisco quake, there's now a law that if there's an earthquake of seven or above, it's like you don't have to pay taxes for that year really? on your property. So they're, they're artificially, what they did is that they switched out the, they switched out the, uh, uh, the seismographs because they no longer use Richter and, and it brought the, it brought the level of the quakes down by almost a, not a full point, but by about 0.6. Uh, now they use something called surface wave sensor, which is a laser and, uh, uh, so the, the, everybody else on earth had the San Francisco earthquake at a seven, at a seven two to a seven four. And they tried to claim it was only about a, about a 6.6 6 or so, but okay. So let's talk about earthquakes. So. Yes. Yeah, so the earthquake that I experienced was allegedly a 7.2. And this is in El Centro? You're talking, it couldn't have been 2010. It had to be. It, it was in Easter 2010. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. It would, it didn't happen in all central. I think it happened more towards in Mexico. Mexico. Yes. Yeah, Mexico. Okay. So in Mexico and it came up. Yeah. The, right. Uh, and you know, you know, Sean, I, I live, that's 30 miles from the Salton Sea and I know yes. you're quite familiar with that. Yep. Uh, oh, okay. Goodness. So I think that, uh, that's a whole other story. Um, yes, it is really my prediction of earthquakes. I don't know how I kind of got started. I just, I started feeling pains in my body and my lower back and, you know, like radio waves building up or something. And then I would notice these releases when the quakes happen. So because I was working with, with, uh, with Art Bell and Art just gave me the, the sort of wide open aspect of this. I mean, it's, you know, when Art found out I made predictions and didn't just do, you know, that I was like a spiritual guy that, that could, that had this ability. He's like, get on the air. And, um, it got kind of weird because Art, one night we were going to go on the air and Art says, I'm not so sure I want you making predictions. And I said, what do you mean? He says, because when you say it, it happens. And, and I said, well, Ed Dames comes on and makes predictions all the time. I mean, he's, he's Dr. Doom for God's sakes. And, and he goes, yeah, well, we all know Ed's full of crap and nothing he ever says occurs, but oh, no. I'm not, I'm not so sure <laughs> that when you say something that us going out into the consciousness of these millions of people doesn't make it happen. And I said, well, that's, I, that's okay. I and mean, I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. But he got to the point where he was afraid of the predictions that I was making. It was a, kind of interesting because Stan Deo got on and said, well, Sean Morton must be the Antichrist because only the Antichrist can make predictions that are that accurate. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I'm he trying to help that. people. Wow. Um, we're on the news. Actually, I had, I put a group together where I taught everybody how to use pendulums and how to scan the maps and, 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 and try to get it within the time frame because it has to do with the, with the window of where the quake's going to be. Um, and when you do remote viewing, uh, and you're trying to project yourself forward into the future, the idea is that you have a – the energy builds to what I call a plateau in which you have the window of likelihood of that of that event occurring, which is very much like a chain around a woman's neck where you've got the jewel that moves back and forth. The event itself is under chaos theory where it will happen at some point within the window, but you can never go to a point in the future and predict exactly when it's going to happen just because of the, the currents and eddies of time. Does that make sense? Yes. Certainly. So, uh, I think a friend of mine, uh, Artemis Shamamian, she was the, uh, she ran the news desk at Channel 9, so she was always sending people over to my house during sweeps week to, you know, to do crazy things. And <laughs> they'd done a story on me in the earthquake group, and I made a prediction that this earthquake, whatever it was, 6.5, uh, was gonna happen in this particular area, I think if I, wherever it was, it, it was gonna, I said, uh, they said, when's it gonna happen? And I said, Tuesday. So, they sent this news crew to my house on the Tuesday. To basically beard the lion in his den and, and, uh, that's so and, funny. Uh, 
and mock me, I guess. They were going to get up and say, oh, well, you gave us this prediction, and, you know, here we are at his house. How do you explain the fact that it didn't happen? On a stack of Bibles, while the news crew was coming up the stairs on the hallway that led to my door, uh, the earthquake happened while the crew was actually in the stairwell. And while the house is shaking back and forth, I open the door and I say, come in, gentlemen. <laughs> and uh, uh, they were just freaked out. So, the story, so then be- the story then became, we're in Sean Morton's house who predicted the earthquake today. We're there live at noon. Um, let me just tell you the progression of the quakes as as I see them. Um, when I started doing these doing the earthquake work, I'd come back from the monastery. I was I would do meditations on the earth, processing energy from the planet, and it's a meditation called the Tong Len, which means to take in energy and to give out energy. And the Tong Len, you absorb the negativity of the planet, you process it through a violet flame or a violet fire, you just allow it to pass through you, cleansed as a filter, if you will, with golden light giving away your godlike nature to the planet to try to, you know, process the pain. And um, so during while I was doing these meditations is when I started getting these weird flashes of various disasters and events, you know, floods, fires, earthquakes uh, were happening around the world. And it just it was a fact. The reason I started writing things down and I started my newsletter, uh, the Delphi Associates newsletter, so I could have things in print so nobody could go back and say, oh, you just made this up. You just made a whole bunch of predictions. And I'm like, no, I wrote it down right here. In this newsletter, which 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 goes out to people, and there was all kinds of people predicting this stuff. Gordon Scallion was like, God bless him, he was the Mac Daddy of earthquake predictors, and Gordon was dead on. I mean, Shirley MacLaine and and Elizabeth Clare Prophet and all these people moved out of California primarily because Gordon's predictions were so dead on. So Gordon was the one that, leading up to his big prediction, was the Landers quake, which is June twenty eighth of of ninety two, and the Landers quake was like a seven point six. Well, where Landers is. It's underneath Giant Rock. It's underneath the Integratron. It's it, it's uh uh, but it sits when you when you look at the Salton Sea, it goes up. When the Landers quake happened, California, the the plate, the Juan de Fuca plate, actually twisted and moved five inches to the Pacific Southwest. I mean, the whole thing was about ready to go. And had that earthquake lasted a minute longer and hit the Barstow Gap, Barstow. If you go along the, the San Andreas, Barstow is interesting because there's nothing underneath Barstow. There's about a mile of dirt, and then it's a big open space that goes down for about 130 miles. So if Barstow had actually broken open, then according to Gordon Scallion's predictions and Edgar Casey, I might add, uh, you know, California would have gone for the big swim and oh, destroyed yes. most of life on Earth. I mean, if California actually went to the ocean, it would create a 3,000 foot tidal wave that would then wrap around the planet, uh, however many times and pretty much kill almost everybody. So, this is why it was weird, and I'll tell you what I believe to be absolutely divine or military or extraterrestrial invention. I don't know what it was myself and all my neighbors in Hermosa Beach saw, but when the Landers quake happened, uh, everybody ran out onto the strand because I, I lived in a house that was like right back from the beach. Mm-hmm. Everybody ran onto the strand, and we're all out there in our you know pajamas and robes and whatever else, and there was a low cloud cover. And while everything was kind of shaking, and I actually ran back into the house to get my binoculars while everything was shaking and ran back out. But there was a fleet of green gourd-shaped objects that were under the cloud cover that they were all across the bay. And then there were these bluish-white beams of light that were coming out of the sky, going, doing whatever it was doing. And it was the, uh, it was the first time I've actually had like fleets of craft right over my house, right over Hermosa Hermosa Beach three times. And, you know, knowing what I'm looking at because you know, all my experience at Area 51. So what I can tell you is on the news the next day, they reported it and said, oh, it's just it was transformers exploding. And people thought they saw beams of light and, you know, thought they saw UFOs, blah, 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 blah. 
And, um, um, okay. So there you go. So, but then I tap into my network of people that was predicting quakes and suddenly the energy is shifted. Everything's gone. I mean, I had like 10 people that I was talking to going, Sean, I can't explain this, but I'm picking up nothing. And we were picking up, I mean, the big stuff and scallion was predicting, you know, these big quakes that were going up California and the eventual destruction. And from that day, Gordon was completely wrong. Dolores Cannon was completely wrong. Uh, I don't know if Lori Toy was doing this or not, but all these other people except me, I, and I came out and said, look, everything shifted. Everything, I, I, I can't explain it. But I also knew if you look in the book of Jonah, Jonah's a prophet that's sent by God to the town of Nineveh, which is, which is Saddam Hussein's hometown. And he prophesies the people of Nineveh. And then he goes up on a hill to wait for the destruction. And it says in Jonah, it says that glowing living gourds in the air, was what they called living gourds, were amassing over the city to destroy it like Sodom and Gomorrah. And because the people had changed or shifted or done whatever it is they did listening to Jonah, uh, the disaster didn't happen. And the people actually, it's kind of funny because Jonah hated the Ninevites. And all the people came up the hill and said, oh, we want you to be the king now. He's like, no, get away. I hate all of you. Um, but I, I looked that verse up in the Bible again, and I, and I thought I saw – what I saw was divine intervention. So now I start my newsletter and I write this this manuscript called The Millennium Factor, which I was just selling at a couple of conferences and all that, uh, that became this another another thing you could buy for like $700 at these rare bookstores. But um, I started my newsletter because I was the only one that said, look, this is not going to happen. Everything's going to be fine. But the first big quake I then predicted was there's going to be a quake in Northridge. And we picked up the energy of the Northridge quake originally underneath Edwards Air Force Base and then watched it shift. And every time that we, that we focused on it, we would get this horrible hum, this, Good which, Lord. Was telling, which was telling us that the quake was going to be somehow artificially induced. And I actually put yes. this in my newsletter because then I looked at where the extra low frequency wave antennas were. I just took a compass and I just took the, took the, the intersect points, which were Flagstaff, Arizona. And I said, okay, we'll look for a five and a half there. Boom, that happens three weeks later. And now I say look at something, uh, look at, um, Northern California over in, uh, uh, across the bay, basically the Bay Area and, uh, uh, Vallejo and nothing happened there. But I said, what we're going to see is you're going to see in January, uh, you're going to see this, this quake. Now I think I said January 7th and there was a shock on the 7th and then the quake actually happened on Martin Luther King Day. So all the schools were out and, and it happened on January 17th when, uh, also the rioting factor, because the social aspect would be, well, you know, Martin Luther King wouldn't want you to riot or whatever else. So there was a social aspect to when they did that, you know, that particular quake. But after I made the prediction, then front page of the LA Times, it said, guess what? Now the military is, is inducing artificial earth, earthquakes under something called Project Shockwave. And Shockwave, they've now buried bombs in a big triangle. They're going to trigger the bombs and use it to create a holographic image of the quake systems of Los Angeles. That was front page of the LA Times in October of 93, and I made my predictions in September, and I kept jumping up and down going, look, I'm telling you, there's going to be a big artificial quake in Southern California to relieve all the pressure on the San Andreas Fault, which is what they did, and it's what they've been doing. They're, they're triggering these quakes. Let me give you one other interesting thing from my noticing this. Sure. Cornell University did a paper. Am I talking too much? No, I'm, I'm loving this. Cornell University did a paper in 2011 where these, these Cornell eggheads, uh, actually took, and I think this is fascinating, but if you look at Pyard's, uh, Pyard squared, Pyard squared is used to actually define the radius of a circle. Okay. You with me? I'm with you. 
Okay, time, as we view it, is viewed as a circle. And it's a circle that's actually in base 12 mathematics, 12, 24, what have you. If you yes. take, if you take pi and multiply it by, uh, which is, which is, by the way, uh, if you take pi and multiply it by the circumference of the circle, it comes out to, uh, uh, 188.88888. So Greenwich Mean Time was established in 1888. On August 8th, which is 8-8 again, is when they established Greenwich Mean Time. Then what they found is that if you go along these earthquake points, these major earthquakes happen in a cycle of 188 days. So mm. if you look at the Fuji earthquake, and then the next quake is the Bio-Bio-Chile earthquake, which was 188, 188 days later. Then the Christchurch earthquake, which is 188 days later. Wow. Then the Fukushima earthquake, which is 188 days later. Then everybody was expecting that the next big quake, 188 days later, directly across from Fukushima. And and by the way, Fukushima was completely engineered. Fukushima was uh, uh, they used an atomic weapon. That's what I heard. Yeah. To kickstart, to kickstart the quake, but they used the atomic because you use the atomic weapon to start the water in the bathtub. You kick it and then you pound it with harp because then the shock wave comes back and forth from the planet. It's the Tesla. Tesla had a little motor, a 1.8 horsepower motor. That said he could, he could crack the world open with it. And he almost did big accident in his laboratory in Chicago, uh, when he used this thing and had to smash it before it, you know, wiped out the city. Jesus. But, uh, it's all sympathetic resonance. It's if you tap the wave and you just keep tapping the top of the wave, eventually the water overflows the bathtub. So they triggered Fukushima with the atomic bomb. Then they hit it with, with harp and to actually then go boing, boing, boing and hit this up because the quake then built from a five and a half to a six, six, to then the 7-2, and then the final quake, I think, was almost a 9-3. But there's a, there's a, and, and if you look at what happened, the nature of the earthquake, there was not a single building that was actually destroyed by the quake. Everything was actually destroyed by the tidal wave that was moving in. So how do you have an earthquake that big, 40 miles off the coast, that doesn't wreck anything? It's yeah. the tidal wave that went in. I mean, remember the people that were on top of the buildings yes. that were filming the tidal wave? It was wild. Those buildings, they should have all been destroyed. That's but they, true. But they weren't. Should have. But here's what happened. What those, what these quakes are doing, and I know this is a, this is a wild theory, but what these quakes are doing is they're readjusting the nodal axis of the planet. The planet itself is off kilter. It's like somebody tossed a, a sneaker into the washing machine. And the reason the, the orbital frequency of the planet is off is because we've tested thousands of atomic bombs, which have not only ripped holes in the time space continuum, not as bad as the USS Eldridge did when it went screaming through time as part of the Philadelphia experiment. That ripped open time-space holes in 20-year increments. And you'll read all about that in my book. Uh, I, have yes. the, I have the entire report we could do on the Philadelphia experiment. We could do an entire show on that. Easy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and by the way, not only that, but using the Philadelphia experiment, I predicted the August uh, – I'm sorry, the 2003 August 13th blackout on the East Coast because I told everybody that if this story is true – if what Al Bielik was telling me when he was alive, he was a good friend of mine, I supported him in, in his last days. Right. If what he's telling me is true, then the USS Eldridge is going to appear somewhere on the East Coast on the 12th, 13th, and 14th, and then it's going to snap back at the end of the tether, create a huge electromagnetic anomaly, and then go back to where it came from in 1943. Guess what? August 13th of 2003, 
blam, East Coast gets blacked out. New York for three days, oh, the rest yes. of it blacked out for 28 days. That was the USS Eldridge. And I told everybody about it in February of 2003. So, Sean, I must ask, everyone is a little bit on edge about when the next big quake is about to hit, especially myself, being that I'm out here on the San Andreas fault line, rather. Um, What do you think is, is going to happen here? Are we really going to get hit with a giant earthquake soon? Not California. They're, they can't lose California. Look, I'm telling you, they've, 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 all the quakes that you've seen. Well, let me do, let me tell you one last thing. The Fukushima quake, which readjusts the nodal axis because the earth actually, our orbit shifted by almost six inches when that happened. And each one of these quakes, by the way, has adjusted the nodal axis by five and a half, by six, by seven inches or so. So then the next 188 day quake that you're, that we're talking about here, the next 188 day quake, everybody thought was going to be San Francisco. Well, guess what? It's on the San Andreas. But it's a seven, maybe that's the one that you're talking about, but it's a seven four and a seven six on the San Andreas in Mexico. You know what the Mexican government did that day? Because we, they know about the cycle. They let the schools out. They let the factories out. They put up big signs that said that this date is going to be earthquake preparedness day. They had everybody with helmets standing outside when the quakes hit. Again, it's, it readjusted the San Andreas fault and that's, you know, that's what they're working on. Yes. So as far as the next big quake goes, my biggest fear, um, and if you look at good old Edgar Casey, Edgar, Edgar Casey had uh, his predictions have, you know, Casey said there was going to be a huge volcano Pacific Northwest uh, in, in in like the late 70s, and he missed it by like five months because it was obviously Mount St. Helens, which was May of 1980. Um, he said that in 1998, 1999, there would be a shifting of the poles. Well, it did. There was a there was an alignment with Galactic Center, and the poles did shift by about five degrees or so. But they went from A, B, and C, and they shifted that way. But he also said, and this is one of his biggest predictions, uh, that there was going to be a massive earthquake in the Midwest that would split the Mississippi River, that the Mississippi River would become 100 miles wide. And um, I'm my fear is that the next major quake that you're going to see is going to be the New Madrid Fault. Now, the New Madrid Fault blew in 1812 and 1813, and it rang bells as far north as Toronto. And uh, uh, if that were to happen today, you'd see trillions of dollars worth of damage. Now, here's the kicker. There's an eclipse that's coming this year that is going to be the truly American eclipse. It starts in Oregon, moves all through the red states, I think, which is interesting, and ends way down in Florida. But the penumbra of the eclipse, which is going to last about 11 minutes or so, is dead center over the heartland of the United States, right on top of, not to the left, not to the right, Right on top of the New Madrid Fault, right there. Oh, I'd like the sum of that. Well, it's interesting because the eclipse itself happening in Leo, because it's August 21st, not only is it going to further literally, physically, and metaphorically split the country, it's possible that if something ruptures in the New Madrid Fault that, you know, it opens up the Mississippi. And what would happen if the Mississippi really was 100 miles wide across the middle of the country? Um, and, and it's another galactic alignment. So the sun is going to align directly with the center of the galaxy like it did in 2012 and like it did in both 98 and 99. And every time we have a galactic alignment, there's a, there's a jump, there's a skip, if you will, in the, in the rotation of the planet. So that could be it. And, uh, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what happens as to whether or not, you know, it does trigger something over the New Madrid. It doesn't have to happen on the day. The pressures themselves, because here's the problem with the New Madrid fault. California, we have, you can't have a nine quake in California. There's because there's all kinds of faultines and there's all kinds of little fault lines. There's all kinds of shock absorbers that go up to San Andreas. So unless we're going to fall into the ocean, uh, 
the, the energy goes out into the, into the shock absorber, so to speak. And I, and again, they can't lose Southern California. Southern California is the center of the military industrial entertainment complex. You can't wipe this out. How are you going to have the propaganda? How are you going to control the people? I can even tell you that there's a shield that if we were attacked by missiles, I mean, there's a shield that starts at Santa Barbara that goes all the way to San Diego. Oh, by the way, Sean, there's a call here for you. Oh, okay. Well, let me goes from San Diego mm-hmm. all the way to Santa Barbara that missiles would just bounce off of. Uh, so again, and, and please remember that the, that Los Angeles is the throat shocker of the planet. So we're the communicative shocker. There's a, there's a shocker system where they search shockers. Did they hang up? I think they were having some connection difficulties. I think that's what's going on here. The, the base root chakra of the planet is Lhasa, Tibet. Prostate ovarian chakra is the Great Pyramid of Giza. The solar plexus is Stonehenge, which is actually solar plexus, a solar calendar. Heart chakra is Machu Picchu. Throat chakra is downtown Los Angeles, the gazebo on Alvera Street. And the third eye is uh, Osaka, Japan. Hi. Hi. There you are. Hi, Mike. Hello. Hi, Sean. Um, Hi. The area of earthquakes has always fascinated me. And I follow a fellow who goes by the name of Dutch Sense. Have you heard of him? Uh, no. Okay. He's been researching earthquakes for years. He has uh, a Twitch and YouTube account. He does earthquake. He calls them forecasts, like he forecasts the weather. And he uses science, not not uh, 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 prediction, but he uses science. And what he has done is turned the uh, seismology science kind of on his head because he's made discoveries that have gotten him in trouble with professors. They try to shut him down. They badmouth him. But the thing is, he's 80 to 85 percent correct on his forecast because he follows the pressure, the pressure on the plate. Now, when you were talking about the new Madrid fault, uh, something interesting is going on because now the fracking in the Midwest doesn't cause the quakes, but the way the pressure moves from the West Coast Along the, um, oh, God, the, oh, I forgot the name of the plate, but it's the plate that's in our continent. Anyway, as the pressure moves, uh, down and west across the country, it hits all of these fracking and oil operations, which are fractured crust, and there are quakes there because the fracking operations have weakened the crust and the pressure causes the quakes there as it moves east. So is, now he, so is, he, so is, is he predicting something, you know, No, he, he forecasts. He forecasts. And he's, okay. he's so spot on. Because he sounds but like you know, there's also Jim, Jim Berkland in San Francisco who does, who does oh, lunar cycles and all that. Happened. Just recently found he passed away, and that made me so sad. Yeah, oh, I love I'm him. so sorry. That's, that's, yeah, Jim was a good guy. Um, wow. Anyway... Uh, because of all the fracking and oil uh, drilling in the Midwest, that absorbs the pressure that is going to the New Madrid Fault. And yeah. Dutch Sense lives just about on the New Madrid Fault line here in uh, Missouri. Well, the, and that reduces there... that. That sucks up some of the pressure. So it's like water. So when that pressure hits the New Madrid Fault, it's not going to be as intense as it would have been before all of this massive uh, crust <laughs> crust shattering. Right, right. Let me let, let me just let me comment let me c- comment that 
once again, I have a theory that they're triggering earthquakes along these major fault lines in order to relieve the pressure. When the uh, in August of 2011, you had an earthquake in Washington D.C. Actually, it was in the Appalachian Mountains, but it cracked the it cracked the Washington Monument, uh, which has yes. been closed I think since then. You had an earthquake actually in the Appalachians on the one hand that was felt all the way up to New York. I was actually in New York when it happened. But at the same time, you had another earthquake that was actually in Colorado. So I think that once again, they triggered this underground to relieve the pressure because the Pneumatter Fault and the Appalachian, I'm sorry, the, 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 um, uh, the North American plate and the Appalachian plate, they butt together like ram's heads, if you will. There's no, Right. Uh, there's there's no relief. There's no faultines. They're just two giant mat- land masses that are all exactly. kind of butted together. So what the 2011 earthquake did was it did relieve the pressure on the Pneumatic Fault because you had these two earthquakes that opened it and expanded it. One in the one at the edge of the Appalachians on the west side of the mountains, and the other one at the at the edge of you know the Rocky Mountain. Well, because they all come together there, the Rocky Mountains and the uh, everything comes together there. So. Once again, but FEMA has been doing all kinds of reports, and FEMA actually last year, uh, well, actually it was, on, it was in 2012, 2013, they were doing all kinds of stuff on New Madrid saying this could blow again, primarily because of the 100-year anniversary of it. But it's one of the last of the, uh, you know, if the Edgar Casey prophecies are not going to come down, where Casey was saying something like, you know, well, Colorado is going to be a seaport and western United States all falls in the ocean. Well, that, that timeline is completely gone and totally shifted. Uh, but if the New Madrid fault line, prediction is still true and he's still talking about the Mississippi River being 100 miles wide at its mouth yeah. then you know that's a possibility that's something they could do and I'm just pointing out that this that this eclipse which also happens to be a a galactic oh, yeah. eclipse as well is just very very interesting was there a question that you yeah. wanted to ask me of anything or? um well no there's I'm going to leave you with a parting thought the next time you you uh check these quakes and record them Make sure you also get the depth level because ah, okay. they can only go so deep for depth levels. Yes. So the deepest quake just happened last year. I think it was in South America and it was over, what, 600 kilometers. And that gets, that goes through the crust and gets into the, um, uh, the, that first layer of magma, the, the right. highly viscous the ma- magma. The, the mantle. So, well, yeah, but below that, below yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so that wouldn't be man-made if if they're only as deep as far down as you can drill, which would probably be about as deep as any of the fracking or oil operations. That would what be maybe a mile, yeah, mile and maybe a little over a mile deep. But if you get something way deeper than that, then that's not explosions. Uh, now, harp is a whole different story. And oh, don't go there. Don't go there. I'm yes. not sure we have time for you to yeah, go there. Thank but. you for the call. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to hop off. But I just, <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure that uh, you check with the depth as well as the intensity of the, the earthquake. Yes, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Your expertise. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And, Sean, I, I do want to ask you, since we are wrapping up here okay. with the interview, sadly, yes, I, I kind of have to get going here soon. I'll miss I, you too, Michael. I, you know, I, I really will miss you. I, there's so much to talk about. Yet well, what else do so I talk about? Time. Let's do a lightning little, little round. Time, Let's yes. Ask a bunch of questions. What do you want to do? Okay. Well, can you make a prediction for us here? What do you see happening in the next, let's say, five years in terms of, I guess you could say, the whole spectrum of society today? What's going to happen in the next five years, Sean? What do you see 
Well, it's, down. again, it depends on, you know, you're seeing, uh, uh, you know, I think Trump is winning his war against the deep state. I think that Trump is, uh, uh, I think the guy's got 156 IQ and he's one of the smartest guys we've had as president, no matter what people say. And, uh, uh, I was, a, you know, I predicted that Trump would be president. I, you know, support him in his presidency. I see what he's doing behind the scenes. Uh, but people don't understand how hard it is when he says he wants to take out drugs. That means he's got to take on the CIA. That means he's got to take on the military. That means he's got to take on the opium coming yeah. out of Afghanistan. Good luck. That means that he then has to take on the banks that are laundering all the money in. You know, there's that. Then he talks about, you know, breaking up the pedophile rings. Well, he's already arrested 2,900 people and you haven't heard thing one about it. Uh, I think that the, uh, if all the media has is the Russia stuff, I mean, Comey in his testimony, he was the one that was told he was the back off of Hillary Clinton after Loretta Lynch had that little meeting with, uh, with Bill, uh, you know, on that airplane where they were looking at pictures of each other's kids, which apparently all looked like briefcases of Ben Franklin's, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, um, I think the whole Russia thing is a ruse. I think that Trump is purposely sucking them into it uh, just to show that there's really nothing to it. Uh, the mainstream media can't, can't, can't actually go with the story with Seth Rich because once they got that, then, then, then they don't have the Russians. Then they don't have – and then it all plays back on the corruption within the Democratic Party and you know the plug being drawn on the, on the swamp. Now, there's going to be – it all depends on whether or not there's going to be this global shift. I mean Trump would be the perfect guy to put in place because he's not really Republican, not really Democrat – do you then just collapse the world economy around him? And yet, uh, at the same time, I think Trump's uh, American first attitude has already helped us. The Paris, the Paris climate agreements were horrible. Uh, they were sending almost a hundred billion dollars to the United Nations and, and, and crippling, uh, you know, U.S. industry here. Uh, the big thing is going to be, it's not, in three years or so, the real trouble is going to come in 20, between 2022 and 2025. And, uh, I don't know how much time I have to talk about it, but, uh, there's, there's, there's two things happening that are interesting. The, the astrological chart of the United States. And by the way, let me just pump my readings. Go ahead. That if anybody wants to, if anybody wants a reading, I do, uh, I do a, a, a natal chart, which is about 60 pages, a transit chart, which is a personalized horoscope, which is about 100 pages. Uh, I then do what's called astrocartography, which I guarantee you is the coolest thing you've ever seen. It shows me the planet on the day that you're born. And all the transit lines going across the planet, which give you ideas of where to travel, where to live, uh, where to meet a lover, uh, uh, where to retire. And uh, I've been doing astrocartography charts since the 1980s. And then I do a, uh, a double deck tarot reading as well, where I use the weight rider deck to do the cross and the crescent. And I use the uh, the Toth deck uh, to actually pull cards to get a, a, a more specific reading. So. Uh, people have said they've had readings for years from all kinds of psychics and they said that this is the, you know, the best one they've ever had. Nice. So, um, so strangeuniverseradio.com. I'm, I'm booking up really fast. I've got like three readings a day tomorrow. But, um, uh, okay. So, uh, where was I? So in the astrological chart of the United States, we're going through what's called our Pluto return. And, uh, Pluto was at, uh, 27 degrees Capricorn between 1766 and about 1780. Which of course was going against the banks, going against England, going, you know, the Revolutionary War. You know, what you've seen with the election of Trump is the, is a revolution, is the people actually picking somebody to, to fight back. But what happens is, is that the really bad part comes in 2022. In 2022, Pluto hits 27, we go through our return, it hits 27 degrees, uh, of, uh, of Capricorn. Now Pluto is the planet of, of death and destruction and uh, dematerialization, if you will. Capricorn is the planet of the skeleton of constitutions, of banks, of economies. It's 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 
it's the essence of everything that things are based on. So just imagine that, that, that Pluto has its scythe underneath, you know, banks and governments and constitutions and whatever, and is scraping away at this stuff. So we hit that in 2022. It moves forward. Then it goes retrograde and comes back again in late 2022. Then it goes forward in 2023, retrogrades again. It goes back over us, runs over us like a truck. Then it moves into Aquarius for a brief period of time, late 2023, 2024. Then it backs up again and moves into Capricorn. And then finally, as a big Christmas present on Christmas Day of uh, of uh, 2025, Pluto finally moves into Aquarius, and that's going to be – the new age, the, you know, the, the, uh, moon in the seventh house and Pluto aligns with Mars. That'll, that'll be the beginning of the age of Aquarius then. But let me give you one other dire thing here. Nice. Madame, Madame was a Russian psychic around, again, around the turn of the century. It was a contemporary of guys like Aleister Crowley and Einstein and whatever else. And she talked about a death star that what she saw is that the beginning of the great culling, the last war of men and animals would occur with this death star. And she talked about the symbol of the swan somehow being connected to it. Well, lo and behold, and I don't see anybody else talking about this, in 1738, two supernovas collided. And the light from this these supernovas colliding is going to hit Earth, and this giant star is going to appear in the sky as the brightest object in the sky, which you could also point to being the, com- the coming of Lucifer the Morning Star. Oh, no on June 1st of 2022, and it just so happens to be on the wing in the constellation of Cygnus the Swan. So it's going to last through the summer. It's June 1st. Look this stuff up. I'm I'm not making it up. Look up the astronomy sites on when the star is going to appear in the constellation of Cygnus, and I think this is the death star that Blavatsky was. So 2022. My predictions have been, and they've been very accurate from 94. In 1994, I, I made the predictions that, that there would be attacks on Washington, D.C. and New York City by the Islamic Jihad, and this would happen in 2001. Very specific prediction in yes. print. It's on mm-hmm. the website under something called uh, strangeuniverseradio.com. You can pick up the Vajra Chronicles uh, and download the whole booklet for 10 bucks. So it would be a nice little contribution. So here was my progression. Yes. My progression was, and here's where I was accurate and where I was inaccurate. <clears throat> Moving forward, I said that the Islamic Jihad be responsible. I don't think they are now, but from what I could see from that far out, would be responsible for attacks on Washington, D.C. and New York City. Uh, this would then lead to war in the Middle East, which within 10 years would bankrupt the United States, which pretty much has. Where I was inaccurate was I had seen uh, a red mercury device, some kind of dirty radioactive bomb, exploded on Washington, D.C. Now, I'm convinced that they use remote viewing to stop that from happening. And the other thing that I saw was a, was a pandemic, some sort of massive plague. That would happen around 2008 or so. Now, it is interesting that that does correlate with SARS and another other genetically modified mm-hmm. diseases, which they managed to stop. Uh, then I talked about how the bankruptcy of the United States would happen due to our adventures in the Middle East, that the United States would start taking in women and children from all across the world. Once that was defeated, that our next major conflict was going to be uh, was going to be with China and that China would start buying up Alaska, and that uh, China would basically do away with the communistic system, which they're about to do, but become capitalistic, which means they'd become much more dangerous. And these would begin with a hot war uh, with China, with the possibility of the of an invasion of the United States through the Pacific Northwest, which is interesting because China's already bought Vancouver and most of Seattle. Uh, 
happening between 2022 and 2025 in this time frame. What about, what about North Korea? Are we going to do battle with them? No, I predicted, I predicted years ago that North Korea would, uh, 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 that I believe that North Korea would consolidate. Uh, they've already marched in the Olympics together under the same flag. Uh, so I don't, I don't see much there. North Korea is really a non-threat. It's, uh, you know, this Kim Jong-un guy just stamps his feet because he wants money because they don't have a, they don't have an economy. So he spends money on missiles. He shoots them up in the air. They have every right to develop missiles, by the way. So, but he shoots them up in the air basically to get people to give him money. Understood. And the only rest of it is, is that he's stolen, he's stolen, uh, plates for our money. We print our money in South Korea, by the way. We used to print it in Philadelphia, but it was too expensive. So we moved all the printing presses to South Korea. And they stole the plates. So his his economy is based on counterfeiting our currency. North Korea um, also has lots of poppy fields out there. Yeah, heroin too is is mm-hmm. all happen. But I think they, I think everything comes where I, I because if you if you join North and South Korea, you bankrupt South Korea because then they would have to absorb a population, and it would be exactly the same of what happened between uh, uh, East and West Germany. Right. Uh, True. Uh, and wrapping up all this is that is that what I see as the, as the end game here. Uh, is there some kind of asteroid or meteor that strikes the planet in 2028? And this is from a remote viewing of 100 years from now. And then looking back, there's a seven-year period of, of chaos, kind of a nuclear, sort of a nuclear winter. Uh, and then something happens, something amazing happens in the year 2034. All the calendars start over in 2034. Uh, there's an event from the future that they call the Day of Appearance which is like every spaceship in this or every craft in this sector of the galaxy appears for one day. They cleanse the atmosphere. They very gently move the planet back onto an orbit that's directly in line with galactic center, which is what I think the military and these world governments are trying to do now anyway. And then they disappear. But at that point, there's a new messianic figure that comes. That's a woman who calls the, who's called the Emanuela. And she's recognized worldwide, sort of like a Dalai Lama character. Ah. And by October 31st of 2039, the reason we still celebrate Halloween is because it's the return of the spirits of the dead, which is not the rapture, but it's it's universal reincarnation. It's not the dead rising from their graves. It's everybody returns through universal reincarnation at this final age. And when you move forward by 2055, the earth is rebuilt. There's remarkable technologies. We recover from, you know, our, our span of, uh, of war and, and terror and famine and progression. And, and this great female messianic figure, uh, comes to the fore and, and rules for all intents and purposes a theocratic global government, which basically ends the, the, the angelic conflict, I would say. And there's trade with other planets. And it's a pretty remarkable thing. And that comes from the Vajra Chronicles from when I did a, uh, it's, it was called the Tibetan soul transference where I just went instead of a past life regression, I did a post life progression to the year 2096 AD, which was like, uh, Jeez. it was something like 50, 56 AI. It actually becomes, uh, after Emanuela. So they changed all the calendars in 2034 after the day of appearance. So that's the good news. That's, that's where we all progress out. And so much to talk about in so little time. I do want to thank you once again for being here on the program, Sean. It's been fun. It's been interesting and quite educational, to be honest with you. I had a great time with you, and I hope we can do it again in, in the near future. Well, you have an amazing voice and a, and a, and a fantastic uh, fantastic persona, and very professional, and, and uh, I appreciate you. So thank you so much for the love. Thank you so much, Clockwise, and we'll do this again in the near future. Okay. Thank All you, right, buddy. Take Call care. anytime. All right. Take care. Bye-bye, Sean. Bye. And that was my guest, Mr. Sean David Morton. So much to talk about, folks. I had a great time here, and 
I will return tomorrow at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And if you are listening to this on the replay, remember you can always listen live every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the TuneIn Radio app. And of course, if you enjoy this program and want to help fund this project, go to michaeldeacon.com. This program completely depends on its listeners. That means you sitting there right now. Share this with your friends and family. I'll return again tomorrow night, 8 p.m. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like bullshit. Like, if I just see it, it's clear. <laughs> How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Holden right now. It's crazy. I had no idea this shit existed before 1776. I'm gonna keep it real. A lot of good content. A lot of, a lot of cool topics. You know, I, yeah, I feel, you know, fortunate to have an opportunity to speak to you guys tonight. Yeah, you guys are, you guys are really big. Yeah, Mr. Rusev. That son of a bitch. I, I like that, man. It, it's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the bartender, you say, what the fuck do you have in your pocket? What the fuck are you going to be smoking time about midnight? That's what I want. Just answer to tell you both the most incredibly well-rounded Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, motherfuckers? successfully. Flawless.